So in one of the ways in which these power relations are evident is in the way in which people who have power imagine the city should be ordered. So it's very often a response to the powerful, although not always, we might come back to that perhaps, it's very often a response to the powerful, to the unruliness of the city or their perceived unruliness of the city to impose a sense of spatial ordering. So one of the things that strikes me in looking again over the chapters that we're talking about here, is how prominent various efforts to spatially order the city are. Eugene, would you have a comment on that? I think picking up from what Jerry was saying, that it's undoubtedly the case that attempts to order spatially are attempts to also order socially. And the crucial thing is there is an assumption built in that if you reorder city spaces wherever they are and on whatever they are, that somehow you can change the behaviour of human beings and the actions of human beings within those spaces. And we can see it in a variety of ways at a micro level if we look at, for example, situational crime prevention strategies that are targeted in the city. Quite clearly, they're premised on the assumption that if you actually target harden particular properties, particular streets, even cars or your whatever, that somehow you can manage to change the behaviour of predators or criminals, however you define them, or dangerous people, strangers. And that is a running theme, that there's the assumption that you will be able to change human behaviour through changing city spaces. You seem to have two different ways of talking about that. One is the beat, and the other is hasmanisation. I mean, perhaps you could talk through those two different circumstances. One seems to be about leaving the space intact, but changing the behaviour by policing people with actual physical policemen. The other seems to be about changing physical space. Yes, housemanization represents the grand plan, the idea that the only way that you are going to change the social relations and the cultural status of any particular city is through sweeping away the old and bringing in the new. And there is an assumption that you can rationalise the orderly city into being that somehow you can imagine it through an architectural plan, that you can actually clear out the old and you can bring in the new. And to a degree you can see that in Paris. There is no doubt that as a result of housemanization, the beautiful city was created. But at the same time, you know, what happened to the people who were living in the old city? Well, they're marginalised, that they're defined out of the new social relations that are being built in through housemanization. And that housemanization has set in motion a whole series of other micro-strategies to do something similar in a variety of cities and a variety of geographical locations. But if you look at policing and the response of London to the pressures and the new social relations that were brought in by the Industrial Revolution and urbanisation, then you see a quite different strategy. There's a notion, well, we can't really do away with the old. London couldn't be housemanised, so therefore you had to have an agency that would regulate relations among the new and the old. And that's what the police were doing. They were clearly ordering the street life, making sure that particular people were in particular places at particular times and that other people weren't in those places at the same time. So quite clearly, there's a very different way of responding to that. So it's still about using space, the police moving around in space, making sure they can observe people, but not remaking the physical spaces of the city in quite the same way as the Hussman story. Yes, one's based on surveillance and the other one is based on spatial transformation. Jerry? I appreciate that some of this discussion can maybe appear to 
the student who's listening to it is somewhat abstract and unconnected with what they think cities are about and their own experiences and images and understandings of cities. And I think one of the things I would like to encourage students to do is just think for a minute of particular parts of cities or particular cities that they know, even perhaps rural areas and smaller towns as well that they know. Think about particular places within them, say, for example, housing estates, think about new towns. Don't just see them as some sort of concrete manifestation of a set of plans for building houses. Think about the visions and ideas that lay actually behind the construction of these places in the first instance. What was the suburb all about? I mean, it came out of a particular understanding about the problems of city life, about it being unruly, about being too intense, about classes mixing too close together. So on one level, it was an attempt to de-intensify that. And of course, we can all visit around most British cities and indeed some cities elsewhere in Europe and further afield. Lovely suburbs that reflect that way of thinking. You think, well, that's, that's a lovely place. It's tree-lined. There's small cottage-type houses. Isn't this beautiful, you know, beautiful locale? And what we're encouraging people to do is to think actually behind that. What does that represent in terms of a particular understanding of human life? And going back to Eugene's point, it is an attempt to create a particular vision of what human life should be like. Steve? In this discussion, what uh, I'd like to pick up on is, you know, you're asking people to reflect on, well, you know, as we look at different parts of the city, let's reflect on, well, why are they there? And I actually think that some of the answers that we actually have for that are actually quite ambiguous. There's an ambiguity around the utopian ideas. I mean, are they utopian ideas or not? So in the Hausman situation, then the utopia seems to be in the centre of the city. That's where utopia is being produced. And anybody who isn't part of that utopian vision is then shoved into estates that are peripheral. Some of those estates might physically look very similar to ones that are actually built for people and designed in a way that is actually in order to improve their lives actually so that in the physical form there can be different kinds of utopian impulses some of those utopian impulses may actually lie elsewhere or being carried out elsewhere and these could be dump estates or peripheral estates designed to marginalize people or they might actually be there to improve people's housing so there is a kind of ambiguity about some of those places that they don't always have one cause or one result that there may be multiple utopian impulses or that there may be contradictory elements in the city I think. So it's just to bear in mind the question marks that do hang over urban spaces and to think carefully about that. It's not that we can't make up our minds about the unruliness of cities but actually that there are genuinely contradictory or paradoxical things going on in cities. Do you want to pick that up? Yeah I'd like to pick up on one or two aspects of what um, Steve has said there and and emphasise the importance of understanding and exploring these things historically for example. If you take, for instance, post-war Paris, one of the key developments that characterised post-war Paris was the attempt to create on the outskirts of Paris a series of mass state housing developments that were seen to de-intensify, as we would put it, the social relations that were occurring within Paris at that particular time. And those suburban housing developments were, when they were built seem to be orderly, they seem to be very much represent a de-intensified social life. But of course, 30, 40, 50 years later, they represent very much the intensification of social relations within that particular part of uh, urban France. So what might appear in one instance to be the de-intensification 
of a particular set of social relations in the urban environment can, at another point, turn out to be actually rather intensificating those very particular relations in that area. I think one of the reasons for that is actually about the kind of the openness of spaces within the city. By openness, that means that there are these questions of the connections and disconnections, so that when you're creating an estate, if it has a set of connections to the city, which means that jobs, money, people are kind of flowing through it and that you have a kind of vibrant space, that certain kinds of connections will actually keep that place alive and make it a good place to live. But actually, as what's happening to a lot of estates is they actually systematically get cut off from a set of connections that actually enable the vitality of that space. So once money starts to flow away from it, once jobs cease to be there, once improvements in the physical structure start to go away, then estates become less and less desirable. It's the openness of spaces within the city that can lead to questions about the connections and disconnections of those spaces, I think. Eugene? The Paris suburbs also give us another example of how connections work because what's fascinating is how those suburbs have been transformed and in many ways culturally revitalised by connections to North Africa that could never have been imagined or built in to the original plans. And in many ways what's interesting is that they've also been transformed, some would argue, into sites of resistance against um, racism being carried out by a variety of state authorities in Paris at the moment. So we can't rule out unintended consequences and unexpected outcomes from many of these places. So what you're saying, Eugene, actually reminds me of the Harlem example. And I think it's about the different positions that Harlem occupies. On the one hand, it is a disconnected part of the city that actually it's economically marginalised precisely because it doesn't have flows of money and investment that other parts of Manhattan Island certainly do have. Some of the predominant images of Manhattan are of its skyscrapers and its vitality, its economic advantage, its central location in flows of money and power, its capacity to influence those flows of money, which Harlem apparently doesn't have. Harlem is also a racialized space within the city. It's uh, clearly somewhere where African-Americans have settled precisely because it is a poor part of town and because of the racial discrimination that they suffer. Now, those are kind of the bad sides of it. But also, Harlem itself has become, at different points, the centre of very vital community activism. This has taken cultural forms, I think, in terms of the Harlem Renaissance. But also, we can see a whole set of black politics coming out of Harlem. More than that, I think there are also a whole wider range of economic connections which may not look as powerful, or which aren't as powerful, maybe, as some of the ones going through the skyscrapers but do have a wider set of economic connections. When thinking about sort of estates, we need to think about their openness. Where are they closed off? Who is flowing through them? What kinds of things? To say that a place is marginalised may mean that it might be creatively forming other kinds of connections and actually constituting itself differently. So we need to kind of think about that openness in terms of connections and disconnections. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.